Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We'll talk video game development and distribution with Matthew White, the owner of Whitethorn Digital, and share our thoughts on the first three episodes of Hannibal, the TV series that just arrived on Netflix. I'm Erica Berlin, the Executive Director of the Film Society. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society. And I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. So we're going to hop right into our interview here because we have Matt. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. This is a treat. And I have to admit, you know, I didn't know that much about you until I started preparing for this interview. And I'm That's just a shame. Away. Normally I have, a, I have a pretty substantial infamy that precedes me in most cases. Well, I, you know what's funny? I've seen your picture. Like I've seen your photograph many places. And that's, that's, now... that's fake news. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying you look exactly the same well, on okay, the podcast. Well, all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you come. So, okay. So let's just like start at the beginning. You're Canadian. Are you Canadian? Guilty. Yes. Okay. So yeah. tell us where you came from. Uh, I grew up in Nova Scotia, which is a peninsula on the east coast of Canada. I'm from an island called Cape Breton, which is a little mitten-looking island on the very, very, very northeast portion. So uh, we are the last northeasterly stop before Newfoundland, which is where I went to college. But yeah, wow. so from the most northeasterly bit of the continent. Yeah, I grew up there, went to school there, went to university in Newfoundland, and took a job here teaching a million years ago. Here in Erie? Yeah, in 2010, 11, something like that. Okay, um, so so you came to Erie to teach. Were you married at the time, or did you come here? As I was actually young? fleeing my ex-wife at the time, so I oh, came here okay. to get to put a <laughs> to put a national border between my problems and myself. Oh, okay, um, well, that, that would work. Yeah, and so um, my parents are American. They're born in uh, well, my mother's American, born in the U.S. My father's Canadian. So I have two passports and a very complicated tax return. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I have a good escape option if things go any further south down here. So it's all right. Uh, oh, God, I'm as, the, okay. as does my son. <laughs> but my wife, I guess, will have to stay here. Um, I haven't told her about this plan yet. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I came down here in 2010, 11, something like that, and taught at Penn State. I was working um, in games at the time and finishing my PhD. The games job ended, uh, sort of an indie thing. Games are super volatile. I'm sure it's a bit like film, uh, where studios show up and disappear pretty quickly. Um, so that ended and finished the doctorate and was sort of like, ah, I guess I'll teach, you know, for a bit. Um, and Penn State was building a game dev program. Needed someone with there's very few people on earth that work in games and also have a doctorate. It's not that it's, that's not a weird flex. It's just a weird combo because you don't need a doctorate to work in games. So generally speaking, people don't do it. You know, why would they? Um, so Unless... Penn State, right. So Penn State being Penn State though, you know, did want that terminal degree, the idea of a terminal degree. And games are young enough that you can't just say, well, I have this MFA and that is a terminal degree in my industry like you can with, say, photography or, um, you know, the fine arts. So very, very uh, uncommon to find that unique characteristic blend is very, very uncommon. So I think I was only one of like three who applied. And of the three who applied, I was the only one who actually worked in games and also my doctorate was in education. So when they were looking for like somebody who was a teaching professor, it just like was pretty good slam dunk. So I moved down, took that job. That's how I, that's how I kind of got here. So what led you to 
get a PhD in education, did you always have the digital track? Did you always want to work in education games? Uh, no, fear of the real world is the answer of why I, I have a doctorate, yeah. to be completely honest. So got an undergrad in English literature, dramatic and Victorian lit. And turns out even in Canada, undergrads are expensive and uh, not, not nearly as expensive as here, but still expensive. And don't say this begrudgingly, it is difficult to parlay an English literature degree into a job that pays back the value of the degree you took. Although I should say the cost, I think there's value beyond just the monetary, of course. Anyway, so I got a master's degree. Well, so in Canada, education is a separate degree. So here where you get a bachelor in education and that's your bachelor's degree, you need to have a bachelor's degree first in something that is a content area that is taught, so biology, English, whatever, and then you get an education degree separately. It's actually four university degrees, Damn. English, education, master's, doctorate. So I was always side working in games. And the thought was mostly because um, we grew up really poor and my mother's fear was if I just poured my entire being into I'm doing this video game thing and it didn't pan out that I would be a you know panhandler and not have any um, other marketable <laughs> skills. She may or may not have been correct in that. But in any case, yeah, that education at first was I like to do this. I like to teach. I want to be in games. If I landed in teaching about games, that would be a totally acceptable side gig for me yeah. or even lifetime gig. So yeah. that was more that way. And ultimately mm -hmm. just fear of taking that jump into like, I'm going to give this a shot and maybe it'll bankrupt me. So instead I stayed in the much safer option that will definitely bankrupt you. It's, uh, there you go. it's funny that like <laughs> trade-off you make. So wait, so you taught, you started teaching in 2010, 2011. Somewhere in there, and yeah. you just And you just launched Whitehorn Digital last year. Uh, yeah, give or take. Yeah. Per the article that I read. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, there's, in terms of, <laughs> yes, that is, that is actually the case. It's just, okay. uh, the year prior I registered it, but it's, there was no actual work happening. So yes, yeah, yeah. So you taught for, for almost 10 years and no, then started it. No, okay. checkered, checkered. Yeah, path. so what happened there? Um, what happened? No, I was I was teaching that whole time, but mostly adjunct roles. So I took a job at uh, Volition, which is a game company in Champaign, which is sort of south of Chicago. The, the second year I was teaching something like that, Penn State's wonderful about letting you uh, consult over the summer. Like if you can go and make money with what your degree is and you're not teaching, they don't yeah. particularly interfere with that. Um, so many professors will do that. Medical professors will go to a hospital. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. um, turns out mine is um, much less science-y, but I think still entertaining. Um, so uh, companies would regularly be like, hey, it's going to cost you next to nothing because the school is still paying my salary. So, you know, you get this high-level person, arguably, at a reduced rate because of the university salary. So it works out really well for allowing uh, professors to um, consult. And the idea is that they would bring that industry knowledge back and it would improve the education of their mm -hmm. students and so forth. Of course. So in any case, I was at uh, Volition. They make the Saints Row games, um, among others, uh, way back in the day, if you're as old as I am, Descent on DOS um, and things like <laughs> Free Space, all those, that was all Volition. Um, oh, Free Space, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. that was a Volition game as well. Same company. <laughs> so I was over there for a while um, and then I came back to teach and they were like, hey, if we just like gave you an enormous dump truck full of money, would you just come here all the time? Um, <laughs> and so I said, yes, because I had student loans and things, right? Um, right? So I did that for a few years. And the games industry, like I said, is notorious for layoffs. So um, you know how you can kind of sense when something bad's going to happen? 
So anyway, I started looking for another job and I left for PlayStation in California. And like three months after I did that, they laid off 90 people. I was like, and you were one of them. No, oh. I was gone before I, I was already gone to PlayStation before. Oh, oh, oh Volition laid yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Volition laid off the 90 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was gone out the door and just like Indiana Jones reaching back for my hat under the door. So that was fine. Um, and I stayed at PlayStation for a while as well. California kind of sucks. I mean, I'm going to say this on record here. Like, California kind of sucks. I think it sucks for the different reasons than I think, like, 45 or whatever percent of Americans think it sucks for. I'm not like, they're all the libs. Like, it's not that. I think it's a wonderful place. I just think it's it is. traffic. Un- it is unlivably expensive. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, simple use cases that you do on a daily basis, go pick up this six-pack that I just got, become a three-hour activity. Like getting out of your parking garage and onto the road is 30 minutes. By the time you get to the place, you're like, it's just a, the basic functions of life that you become used to when you're in a relatively low density area become nearly impossible. If you have a simple use case, like go buy a shirt at Old Navy. Like you have, you know where you're getting it. You know the shirt you're getting. You're just going to go grab it. This can be your day, like, yeah. because of planning traffic and parking. And, and then say nothing of the cost. I mean, our other, this one's a little more, but our mortgage on the house we had previously was less than my uncovered parking space was in Cali. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's where is, just... Where is PlayStation? Are they in LA? They're all over, but I was in the San Diego area. Um, but they're San Diego, Santa Monica, yeah. and there's in Europe and Japan and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but the office I was in was like a little bit northeast of San Diego. Beautiful area. I would certainly visit again. I miss the scuba mm-hmm. diving and the seafood. And um, oh, I bet my favorite part of San Diego is probably Tijuana. To be honest with you, like I actually uh-huh. I really like Tijuana. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But yeah, like so having Mexico right there is really lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, Mexico is a really lovely place. The people are awesome. The food is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's you can go in with thirty dollars, drink for two days, and come back and get eighteen dollars <laughs> change, um, tipping a hundred percent the whole time. Yes, like it. It's just um, not a lot to complain about when you're living in a city where a beer's like sixteen fifty. So um, um, yeah. yeah, so a lot of it was just lifestyle. Obviously, games is notorious for uh, something we call crunch, which I'm sure is similar in film. But basically, um, it's really hard to anticipate or plan for how long it will take to produce a game because usually the creators are imagine if in film when a director or a writer planned out a complex shot there was just really no precedent for how that had ever been done and that was every single movie so instead of it just being like james cameron stretching the budget i'm going to take a submarine to the titanic i want to film um a shot where text goes in reverse and it's like okay cool no one has ever done that we're gonna have to literally rebuild everything from the ground up so that happens all the time in games really common because we're always trying to be more creative and that doesn't necessarily mean bigger uh, although some really really big industries try to just go bigger big companies rather um think of your summer blockbustery type movies where it's like we're just going to pour as many million dollars into this thing as we can to just get it as big and inflated and we certainly have those but most developers are instead of trying to just get bigger or more realistic or trying to get weirder or more creative and unfortunately what that means is you're almost always in territory nobody's ever been in and so planning that is really really hard um you know like it'd be a sort of like me giving you a map that only had where you are and where you need to be and nothing in the middle and i was like how long is it going to take you to get over there and you're sort of like i don't know you know it's like you can see it's like maybe three miles but it's like is that a mountain is it a river is it we don't know and so the planning can be very very difficult as a result usually you end up with work that piles up toward the end imagine if you know you have 
50 things to do and you have 50 days to do it. It's like, okay, well, that's one a day, really easy, right? But then if one of them starts taking longer, starts taking longer, this deadline never changes. So this stuff just gets shoved ahead into this awful compression space. And because we lack things like unions or labor rights or um, a meaningful presence in a non-at-will employment state, just work people to death, like 120 hour weeks, really common. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of a plague on our industry right now that you'll hear lots yeah. about. I mean, just Google crunch time games and you'll get a mm -hmm. trillion results. This whole book's written about it. Um, Jason Schreier's Blood, Sweat, and Pixels should be behind me, and that's a really good one if you wanted to pick it up. He doesn't pay me for that. It's just a great book. Anyway, so that's another reason big companies tend to have more of that because smaller indie companies just move their deadline. Like it's If you're going to release The Last of Us that just came out, big, giant AAA game, and you have to tell Sony, hey, I'm going to delay this six months. They're going to crucify you for that because they've already <laughs> planned 100 marketing. million bucks of marketing rampage globally, mm -hmm. placements, events, physical things. The right. copies are already on shelves waiting for the last day download, day one patch kind of thing. It's a big fucking deal. In any case, it can be troubling because if you're in the driver's seat and you're somebody that's actually putting a game together, you got to get it done regardless. Not fun. So I didn't like that experience. Indies are a bit more like indies in film, I think, from what I understand from talking to y'all and other folks. You're here for more than more freedom than money. You can get money too, and money's great. You're more here because you can do what you like um, and be a little more experimental, and a little more wild, and a little more odd. You don't necessarily have to kind of walk a tread path. Yeah, so sorry, that was a super long answer to a very short question. It was, but I no, I mean, it really set the stage. So you're in here, you're teaching, you're consulting, you go out to California, you decide... This crunch is really... Not just crunch, to be fair. Like the PlayStation crunch okay. actually isn't too bad. But the, okay. it's really like the big deciding factor for me was like yeah. living in California blows. Right. So you thought, I'm going to go back to Erie. Yeah, I basically said to my wife, I can do this anywhere there's internet. If I can have the like requirements for an industry mm -hmm. like mine are like livability and fiber op. There you go. And you because... have, do you have fiber op connection at that house? Not at the house. No, but at the office. Yes. Oh. The downside is, I mean, for this kind of thing, whatever, like fiber op's great for a residential use. If you're just, you know, it's funny, like big fiber op is going to come break my knees for saying this. Really the use case for most people in their home is like nil for fiber op mm -hmm. because you're it's upload. That's always janky. Like you're downloading, I mean, if you're watching 8K video in 120 frames a second, like if you get 100 meg down, you're good. Unless you got 10 rooms doing that at once. Like most of the time, you're fine. It's a bit like, you know, installing a fire hose direct to your shower head. Like just, it's overkill. You can't possibly <laughs> consume enough water to need it coming in. But, you know, I mean, boys like numbers. And so it's like, well, mine's 10 gigabits. And it's just, it's a bit <laughs> about marketing, bigger, better, larger horsepower. Mm -hmm. It's just horsepower for nerds. At the office, it's like mandatory because of, because of upload. So if I'm building something for, you know, um, a major console, Xbox, PlayStation, whatever, those build files can be like, you know, terabytes. And I've got to upload that to Microsoft or wherever it's going. And at home internet, my 10 megabit upload, that would take a month something mm -hmm. like that. And I might have to do it 10 times a day. So wow. that gig up, gig down minimum is like, is hardcore required to do the work we do. That's probably an extreme example, but excuse me, you're regularly uploading extremely large files. So one of the things that fascinates me about games, film to a certain extent, but games actually get you to participate in this is mm -hmm world building, you know, you're creating sure. a whole world and making all the rules and all the personalities and all the options and actions that people can take. 
So what happens at your company when you're, when you sit down and say, okay, we have an idea for a game. How do you start? Quick point of order. 90% of the time, we're more like a, we're more like A24 or one of the, like a film label. Like we're more of a boutique. Yeah. So people will come to us most of the time with their games already substantially built. And then we're kind of the last step that actually gets you on. Like a distributor. Yeah. So we're we're a video game publisher. But that said, we do make one or two things in-house as well. Because the whole overall strategy of a publisher is you usually aggregate around a brand of some kind. So you know if you like, but you know if you like a beer from a particular place that you're probably going to like other things they make because you're used to that like brewer's unique taste or particular qualities and whatnot. And so you tend to cultivate like a particular brand, you know, like if you think of like Stone, they cultivate like we're going to hop the shit out of everything, even if it doesn't need hops in it. And that's what we do. And so if that's your shtick, like you'll always go back to that brewery. And so every new beer and new recipe that they try is just furtherance of that brand footprint. So you eventually know them for this thing and then they become a go-to for that sort of thing. That's exactly what game publishers do. We really like, we aggregate around a particular like deal of game. So we, we over here like lean into like wholesome, approachable, chill stuff. That's our whole, you know, you want to put a cat on your head and ride a bear around and frig around and make pastries and kind of have like a low stress approachable experience. That's the kind of sort of experience we're providing. Customers are folks that read. They're folks that like narrative hooks. They're people that like logic puzzles. It's less of, um, you know, run down a hallway, shoot people, that kind of thing. I don't think we have a game where you can fire a gun. Uh, oh, I guess in a ground you can like manufacture a little musket or something, but it's like a little, it's like, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, I'm curious, Matt, like how did you arrive at your niche? Did that happen just naturally or did you yes. set out? Yes and no. Give me, I want to put a pin in that. To answer your original question though, because I sort of clarified and sidestepped it, when starting a game, ideas are, you start with what people are doing and then you build around that. We say you start with mechanics. So mechanics in a game are any, think of it literally like a lever. Whatever the player can actually interact with and change, that's a game mechanic. So like in Mario, it might be jumping on things. Like that's the core mechanic of that game. And then you build around it. So if you have a unique mechanic, usually that gameplay will carry everything else. You can be story first, but you'll find that uh, critics differ aggressively on games that have no particular mechanics and are completely story. There's very few of those, to be clear. Um, I still think those are games. There's a whole debate in the audience, in our industry about this. Anyway, but anyway, it starts with player actions first, to answer your original question, uh, is that the very first thing we choose is interesting actions for people to take. And then we try to see how we can play with situations to do those actions um i know that sounds odd but it's literally the first building blocks are what's a player going to do with their fingers and what's that going to do on the screen that's the first step so if you find something super interesting like um you know minecraft the idea of like taking apart and stacking blocks is core to that game and then you build the whole experience around it um and that's exactly how all games are made it's always what's the player doing first find some interesting goofy thing that you can do with a computer and then build an experience around it wanted to approach a kind of a blue ocean market the fight for that like 16 to 24 year old like angry white kid market is real dominated like there's a lot of people in that space I don't particularly like that space. And also it's really hard to get in there. Like the number of game developers vying for sort of angry white kids money is really high, right? I mean, you think about every Fortnite Call of Duty. These are good games. I'm not suggesting that they're not in any way, 
but the audience is super clearly defined. We spent the entire 1990s, if you ever get a chance to look at like some 1990s game ads, they are so hyper-masculine. It like, it literally makes like Dwayne the Rock Johnson look like he's in a tutu. They are so over the top masculine, just crazy hyper toxic masculinity that we've cultivated the audience that we now sell to. And that's all anybody ever does. There's this myth in marketing that like certain audiences just exist out there and you just have to find them with the right marketing tools. People are just people. You sell them products and then they start to identify with those products and then that's that. And then you have people getting into fist fights over whether PlayStation or Xbox is better. You know, and this happens in every industry it's not unique to games you think about people who are like diehard ford drivers or diehard honda drivers or whatever when ultimately at the end of the day you know like your your focus and your civic and your uh, they're the same car i mean like the usability is identical anyway we've cultivated this 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 sort of idea of what like a gamer is when if anybody's on the audio version i'm making real sarcastic um finger (laughs) quotes here and that that identity that we've sort of sold to people, we just continue to remonetize, right? Like, you know, if you're a real gamer, you'll go buy this $900 video card. And it's like, and you go and you do it. And it it's that. So that market has been like mind raw. Like there's, there's not a, it's the kind of thing like Elmer Fudd, like he turns out his pockets and there's just butterflies in there, moths. Like that's what's, that's what's left with that market in terms of money. But then we start looking at like folks who used to play tons of games on like the Super Nintendo and whatnot, but now have like kids and don't have 68 hours to sit down and play an Epic, but still really like games and sort of feel bad that they can't be in that space anymore. And it's like, oh, now those people have tons of money and they're not spending it on games anymore. Well, that looks like money sitting on the table. We look at Mm -hmm. folks who have historically been excluded from games advertising and games marketing, like women, LGBTQ folks, people of color. um, And these are people with tons and tons of money who are happy to see representation of themselves, but we as an industry have never done it, really. And and on top of that, just calming experiences. Most games tend to be really adrenaline pumpy, like, I gotta, you know, beat this thing. And even the sort of societal stereotypes of gamers are kind of like you frantically mashing buttons and whatnot. And there is a lot of that, certainly given the capability of computers and systems these days it doesn't need to be all about that and so we see games like um animal crossing that came out during the pandemic you know outselling anything nintendo's put out in the last 10 years and it's like now except for pokemon but it like absolutely skyrocketed right like it's it massive smash hit and that just continues to show you that there's this portion of the audience that is not frequently having experiences built for them and when they do show up they buy them like just absolute crazy so it's it's an interesting thing you start seeing like, okay, well, but few people who are like mainline Call of Duty and Halo players that went and bought and played Animal Crossing. Many did, but not like not the majority. And yet it massively outsells all of these other large games. And it's like, well, then who's buying it? And the answer is this enormous undertapped market of people that are only here for this game because this is the only experience that caters to them. And so the logic with aggregating these kinds of experiences was that there's this enormous unmined um, customer base that's never had anybody address them. And, and knowing that since I was moving to a smaller town, the likelihood of me being able to jump on like series A investment, tons and tons and tons of money to kind of kick this off was nil. And then I'd have to basically bootstrap to prove the value of that market with my own money. So I needed to be pretty sure that it existed. Sorry, long answer, short question. Matt, I feel like you're yeah. talking about, I, so I played a game a while back called Limbo. 
mm-hmm. like, was really for Apple TV, and I think they offered it on yep. a few other platforms and stuff like that. It started like, on Steam, I think, a million years ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but like, I think you're, you, I, that makes a ton of sense of what you're talking about. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the writing process on some level. But when you start off in the process, do you guys, um, how does it, like, does somebody come and it's like, hey, I think I have the germ for a story, or it's like, hey, I want to try to do this in a game. Like what is it? Is that a chicken or the egg type of conversation? Yeah, this is hard to. Well, this isn't hard to answer, but it's it's a it's gonna be another long one. I'm sorry. Usually, gamers are like have some other create not gamers. Excuse me, game developers have several other creative habits. Like you know, I mean, I'm sure this is true in your industry. Creative people tend to be creative everywhere, right? Like hobbyist mechanics and cooks, and they'll knit and they'll do cross stitch and they'll have like gardens they've designed. And they got bonsai and they like they all kinds of creative things. So generally speaking, um you know, there's sort of different disciplines in game dev, right? Like there's, you know, programming engineering and sort of like art and visuals and there's like writing and dialogue. And um, and that's just in the core content. There's also, you know, HR and sales and all these other pieces that actually um, make it a business and not just a art, right? And it's the same with film, of course. So just like in film, there are, you know, game writers. It's an entire discipline. Um, people who just write. It really depends on the game. Um, indies like the, like Limbo, and like many of the ones we publish, tend to wear a whole bunch of hats. So many times the person who is doing art, who is doing programming, is also doing writing, is also like there's a lot of that going around. On larger projects, like one of the ones we're working on in-house, you know, like think half a million plus kind of budget, um, you'll just hire a writer. And that person will be, you know, there to make certain that your original kind of premise that you had is you know, sound and not just kind of half-baked and poorly put together. You ever watch like the Neil Breen movies? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's kind of the result of an indie that does literally everything himself with a high budget. Same kind of thing. And there's quite a few of these. I'd be happy to sit down and do some bad games with you sometime. I don't know if there's, no, there are some. I was going to say, I don't know if we have like a, like a, the room, uh, like a really like celebrated bad game, but I think, I don't know. We, we might have a few. The reason I say this, generally speaking, as the game gets big, 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 then you, I assume just like with movies, you have to carve off other roles. Like, it's like, okay, this is, we're talking 20, 30 hours of dialogue here. Like we need to, you need a writer. Like you need to not be doing all of this. And we need to like make that a discrete compartmentalized role. Oftentimes, if you look at the credits of games, there's also even distinct writing roles. There'll be like scenario writing, which is the game, like the proper writing, but then there'll also be script writing, dialogue writing, interaction writing, and what's called environment writing, which is like giving the people who, because the thing about games is in many games, there's your core story, but then you also just like interact with other people who have their own lives and things. And those, those things also have to be cohesive, right? Like it's, um, it's quite tricky because, you know, it, you're talking in a film, about, like, you can just be like, oh, two cafe patrons. They're in the background. We never have to address them again. Like, we, we don't ever, they're in, they, we pan across and they're gone forever. Yeah, something uh, like Skyrim where there's like multiple things. You, you can be going through the town, but like there's just like peripheral stuff happening all over the place. Yeah, so we'll start, we'll start usually writing with something called a critical path, which is um, the movie experience. It's the single line from beginning to end of this game. If I did none of the diversions, if I didn't walk it, like if it, the way I would imagine a player would play it, the perfect playthrough. And that's that's called a critical path. From a development standpoint, that means that's the path through the narrative that needs to be built in order for the rest of the game to work. Hence critical path. Um, so that's that's usually like a third or fourth milestone in the development of a game. And that's what we're on with one of our titles right now, trying to finish that. And the idea is that... Um, once you get to that point, you could show an investor or a funder or whoever, 
the complete experience with none of the side of like fluff content, additional exploratory stuff. So at some point, even those big games that you see like Assassin's Creed and whatnot that have hundreds of hours of gameplay and that you can meander through and spend forever in, they have a critical path. They have a perfect fastest playthrough that is experience all the content go directly through the main storyline and none of the side just and that that always is the the big first thing to build out especially on a smaller team if you're really big and well managed you can kind of do multiple things at once but for smaller teams it's crit path first and that's often written first as well um, because oftentimes key plot beats critical pieces of information that need to be exposited whatever um, are in that critical path but everything a player should need to know in modern game design everything a player needs to know ought to be in that critical path there's older rpgs and things that kind of hide exposition that you might miss generally speaking that's sort of considered a faux pas now to let a player complete a game without all the tools necessary to understand its narrative conceivably they could miss something that would be like oh well if you didn't find this book hidden on a shelf in this room then the entire story makes no sense or you know that kind of deal so you mentioned the different roles of yep. making a game. You currently have eight employees. Mm -hmm. And what are the roles on your team? Oh, uh, let's see. In-house. <laughs> so remember as a publisher, we're slightly off because we have more salesy stuff than a normal than a normal studio would have. Well, so there's me. Um, we have uh, a community manager who is, that's Sam that you saw in the video. Um, she is sort of like your studio's paid to steal the words from another community manager, Harris Foster, one of our competitors slash buddies, Finji. Um, they're your studio's loudest fan. So basically they're your uh, combo of your evangelical face of your studio. Like this is what we're about. Come find us on Twitter, play our games. But so there's a publicity piece to it, but also they'll do things like manager, social media feeds, your Twitter, your Facebook, your da da da. Make sure you're present on all of those. They'll address community concerns in forums. They'll gather bug reports and send them to you. They'll represent you at conferences. So that's that's that role. We get a, like a store operations person that does like sales, discounts, numbers on marketing and selling games, moves physical merchandise, that kind of stuff. Three engineers, three engineers. Um, they do engineering, <laughs> programming, <laughs> C sharp mostly. Yeah. Uh, we have a writer. Five, no, he's a contractor. Six. Two more. Yeah. Two more artists. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Artists. Both <laughs> artists. Yep. And so, okay. So you just, you know, you're, you're being funded in an opportunity zone. You're mm -hmm. the first recipient through, um, Erie Insurance's big, uh, opportunity zone plan. thing. Yep. That's yeah. right. So what is your plan then? So you have eight employees, but mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure they, you know, they invested in you because they know you got, you guys are going to grow. So what is your yeah. growth plan? I'm trying my hardest not to just Silicon Valley unicorn. One of the things that's tricky in games is that sales of this title don't in any way, they do in some way predict the sales of the next title, but they're not like prescriptive. It's not like I sold a million units of this game. Oh God, if that happens, I'm on cloud nine. If I sold 50,000 <laughs> units of this game, I can guarantee I'll sell 85 of the next one. It doesn't work that way. So it's not like I'm running Dollar Shave Club where it's like, you know, last month I had 20,000 people signed up. This month I have 28,000 people signed up. I have an upward trajectory. I can go to an investor and say, please give me a cartoony burlap sack of money with a cash line on it. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So kudos to your insurance um, and that group for uh, being willing to shoulder an immense amount of volatility in an industry where you could sell a million units of one game and nine of another. Mm -hmm. Um, and so a really like kind of rookie mistake, if I can say this now after 
10 or 11 years in this industry is if you sell a bunch of a game, like, like your first game you ever put out sells millions of units. You ever play Flappy Bird? All right. So there's a guy named Dong Nguyen, a Vietnamese guy who did Flappy Bird. And so Flappy Bird is a really simple little phone app, if you don't know. And you just basically, you're a little bird, and you just tap. And every time you tap, the bird flaps its wings. So gravity's pulling it down. You're trying to tap him up. And you basically just have to keep him going and not run into obstacles. Really simple. And I think he put it on the app store for like a buck, just like as a shit. And it's something he put together in like two weeks on um, iOS, like in um, uh, Xcode. Uh, Anyway, it sold like 85 million units. (laughs) Um, and then, and then he put it on Android and it did like another hundred million units. And then it, yeah. So anyway, dude made seven, I don't know the exact figures that are available for you on like Gama Sutra or an industry website, but man made hundreds of millions of dollars suddenly and famously quit games entirely because the interaction with game audiences was so notoriously toxic and terrible that it made him hate his life. So now in the industry, we have a joke called pulling a dong, which (laughs) is when you make one successful game and get the fuck out of the industry and never look back. A a sort of a rookie mistake in games is when you have one modestly successful game really early, people will often staff their studio up like crazy and be like, all right, now I'm making fucking Halo. And really, like, I can finally do it. I've made it. And that's a really common error. So someone will make a million bucks on their first game. And it'll be like, hire 30 people. And they'll pay them for the two, three years to get that game done. Game will come out, sell 10,000 units, and they got to fire everybody. And so this happens a lot. So in order to stay open, they have to lay off 80% of those people. Sometimes the studios close. There are many examples of this happening. So that is sort of a cautionary tale in games that when you start to do well or you receive an investment like this, the thing you must not do is now absolutely just shotgun the gasoline because you'll burn out like crazy. So despite receiving what seems like a large investment, and it is, that's not me trying to minimize, Mm -hmm. but what on paper looks like an astronomical amount of money, you won't see immediate like hardcore gas from us, not because we don't want to grow, but because we're trying to be really strategic with that investment because you know, bluntly, it was very hard to get an investment here. Um, I mean, we're very far from traditional funding and investment cycles at this part of the world. And you know this, I'm sure. John, I know you had know to, this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I know you had to claw and scrape to get movie funding together, right? And I mean, that was a, like yeah. a quarter of what I just managed to pull together and for the same thing. And, and, and I mean, that's not meant to be diminutive. It's just, you know how difficult putting that together can be. So um, we're very much treating that like smog's hoard here and being like, we're going to dole that out in a very conservative and restrictful way until... Uh, until sales and things are sufficient that it seems reasonable to start being a little more liberal with the spending. Mm -hmm. Um, You won't see any major hires from us for a little bit. Right now, it's about just finishing existing products. Um, Next positions that would probably open up are going to be a little, honestly, a little more entry-level stuff. Um, One of the things that we wanted to start focusing on is uh, quality assurance, which is basically testing. Um, So uh, eventually, you want to make better products as well as just larger products. You want them to be more bug-free, available in more languages, this kind of thing. So you'll start seeing us looking at things like in-house quality assurance managers, in-house testing, that kind of thing, start serving that as a contracting service to others. Um, that's that's kind of probably the next few hires. And those are, those are like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't require a degree of any kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're very, they're, as long as you are computer literate and proficient in, um, you know, the English language and note taking and being extremely diligent and rigorous is, is that's about all you need. Um, and certainly liking games helps, but right. you know, cause you're going to be playing them 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but wow. that's probably what a game. Next... What a that's a great job. Kinda. I want to be clear <laughs> that it's a. I can't make an analogy that isn't filthy. I'm trying to find one here. It's a bit like because you don't you don't just play the whole game, right? Like you're not just you try to break it. You're right. trying to break it. It's instead of like you know here's this Maserati, just drive it however the hell you want. It's like, here's this Maserati. You got to put it in park and reverse over and over and over and over again, 700 times until the transmission breaks. And you need to record how many times that took and then do it again. So it's like, it's not, it looks like, like, look at this sexy beast of a car. I'm just going to rip around the track on this thing all day. And then I'm going to go home and be like, oh, work was hard. But it's really like, you're going to break the windshield wipers, like by pushing the stick. 75,000 times. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it can be very draining. QA can be super tiring and very difficult because it appears from the outside and your peers are often like, oh, you play video games all day. And, but, you know, and so in the reality, it, one of the things we super try not to do in the industry is be like, the fucking QA because, because they get that a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, certain open world games, like, like the Assassin's Creed ones, they're so big that like tens of thousands of human hours of quality assurance go into those to make sure they actually go out. So like, it's really difficult to understate the amount of essentially video game manual labor that is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those roles though are super good because especially in a place like Erie that has like a really transitional workforce, um, you know, like we're trying to get a community college here, things like that, um, which I saw passed, which is great. On the record, I am pro community college. I don't know how that's even a debate. It's a good, it's a good job job for someone who has not graduated from college. It is a tremendous job for someone who has not graduated from college because it pays mm-hmm. quite well, has benefits, and it is not hazardous exposure to environmental chemicals, risky, that kind of thing. And hopefully if they work for you while they're in college, they might stick around after they graduate. The colleges and... have been great. Yeah. For sourcing. Yeah. yeah. Really good. We hired, I think we have four people that were from local colleges. We also have one from Carnegie Mellon, but like uh, the other remainder are all from this area. And so you have an office that you're renovating on 12th? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it's public now. So it's 11 East 12th Street. So the building immediately adjacent to 1201 Kitchen that looks like a weird tumor. Right. It, it won't look like a tumor when I'm done with it, I promise. That's great. That's great. Yeah. What a good location. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's literally the confluence of 12th and State, right? So you get a, quite a lot of traffic. Um, mm-hmm. So we're trying to find creative ways to um, use that to leverage visibility locally. A really tricky thing for us, um, n- we don't sell a lot of games here, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I would say the alarming majority are Asia, Europe, and a little like random places around um, the U.S. But um, you need some to... video screens up on up on. Yeah, that. that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to crack that nut. One of the things we've thought about is I don't know who runs Area Apparel, but I was like, man. Now that I'm in the newspaper, I totally want to reach out to them and be like, hey, do you want to put our games on shirts? And be like, we make video games in Erie, dude. Come live in Erie. Like, I'll take 10%. I don't care. I just wanted you to let people know we make games here. What if you had, like, now that you've got the building, what if you had, like, a, a local muralist every time you're about to do a new drop and they did a mural of your game? But it is abutted by 1201. We might be able to, like, we have an easement agreement with them. We might be able to do something. But that's really cool. And that's such a good confluence. Like, one of the reasons I like that is, like, so many humans go by that on a daily basis. Like, it is. Right. Right. And then you're doing just, like, a unique art thing. But it's, like, you're getting all the traffic. We also, the building, like, we're wilding on that building. Like, it's not going to look anything like it did a minute ago. Um, Oh, that's great. That's good. And that's coming from part of your investment from the Opportunity Zone, right? Yeah. So um, the intention of the um, the whole Opportunity Zone program and uh, also Erie's vision for, Erie Insurance's vision for 
trying to you know improve the downtown because of course their employees live and work in the downtown makes sense mm-hmm. uh, is to bring and cultivate more interesting things for their well the people who live here to do in the downtown core um obviously there's plenty of places that are uh new that you may now work downtown like we've um, attracted and added quite a few employers in recent years brand new utility um vnet we have all of the uh, new buildings like marquette that's overhauling the corner of 10th and peach uh, lots of kind of building in the workspace they say live work play is the whole mission of the downtown right um so the live is certainly being taken care of with like new apartments going up the north park row projects things like that work obviously there that play piece is kind of up in the air still so i think we were a very attractive play i mean like we're play is our business it's the entire thing we do it's that last piece i think we we definitely provide an interesting playful aspect to most festivals things like celebrate eerie where we have giant video game tents and whatnot you just come in and hang out and play video games and you know whenever that gets to happen again and isn't over zoom last question sure what what is your favorite movie that has influenced you enough to want to make a game about it you know probably the bond series like any of the Mm -hmm. i mean really i like i'm a way back well not way back nintendo 64 so what like 95 96 thereabouts goldeneye was like the first console game with guns in a meaningful way so like what i mean by that is previously like super nintendo whatnot there were like arcade style shooters which are from a top-down perspective like you're looking down at the top of the soldier's head and there's like bullets coming out of them that kind of thing and occasionally two-dimensional shooters like contra on the nes where you're looking from the side but these are both widely considered like arcade style played with a joystick and a button for shoot goldeneye was like your james bond like you felt like you were james bond what i've always wanted to do is a company um called uh telltale games that sort of went under and back up and under and back up they largely do narrative stuff they do the batman series a walking dead series um they have a pseudo original one called the wolf among us which is based on the fables comic books and they're all really good but the game's mechanics are really limited they're very like narrative choice driven so again they sit in that same market of people that i'm attempting to address you might ask yourself why are you attempting to address a market of a company that went bankrupt my argument would be the company wasn't managed very well but in any case (laughs) there are more reasons that a company goes bankrupt than that the market doesn't exist i always wanted a narrative style bond title like really really well done capturing the puns really getting that smarm and like that there's so much attention paid to as you said the world building and the older bond titles that i think is um maybe missing in some of the newer ones you know i think what killed it for me was so casino royale when they cast tano craig I, don't get me wrong. I think that's a beautiful man. I would, I would grate Parmesan on that man's abs. Like he is a beautiful <laughs> man. But regardless, my point with this is, I think oh, that yeah. the missed opportunity of the smarm is what I'm missing. So, you know, right at the beginning of that movie, he like drowns this guy in a toilet, right? And I was really waiting for him to just stand up, straighten his tie and go, oh, you're looking a little flush, you know, just something <laughs> like really stupid. And they just drop the ball on all that. Like there's yeah. none of that just cool Sean Connery grease to it. You know, just, I just, yeah, I miss that a lot. It, I think like some of the older Bond movies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from Russia with Love, Thunderball, I really enjoyed. Man with the Golden Gun's really good. Uh, like I, 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 I mean, I like a lot of those old Bond films a lot. And so I think if I, yeah, I'd probably pick one of those to be honest with you to make like a really good narrative driven type one but it'd probably be like an original script or one of the books that hasn't been made into a film right you could go back to the source material yeah 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 Yeah. i think that's i think that'd be lovely because i think 
Um, if you've ever played the Uncharted series, or at least know about it, it's like a PlayStation 4 mainline right. series. Yeah. They tried to capture some of that. Like he's Nathan Drake is sort of a, a sort of a character study between James Bond and Indiana Jones, kind of right in the middle with sort of some Han Solo in there. Just that like plucky, attractive rogue. There's a unique thing in writing for games, since we're on the topic, that uh, they, we call ludo narrative dissonance. So this is a weird, this is a weird thing. It's a mouthful, but the idea is. You have the narrative of the story and the narrative of the character and kind of the character study, but then you have what the player is actually doing. And sometimes those don't like line up. So let me explain. So he's meant to be this plucky roguish character, right? Like, ah, I'm sort of goofy and I'm the good guy with the heart of gold. But then in the game, you shoot 400 people. And it's like, like right at the beginning of the game, you know, these pirates come up, they're trying to steal your boat. So you just gun them all down. And then the next scene, you're like plucky sharing a beer. And it's like, I just killed 80 people. And it's just what you're doing and what you're experiencing in a narrative don't click. So that's um, widely nowadays we're very careful to try to find this lineup between what the narrative role of the player's character is and what the player's actions are. It's a little too Snake Plunkett, if I'm understanding. Yeah, that. yeah, Snake Plunkett. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense when... You ever watch the old, like, Walker, Texas Ranger episodes where he just basically brutalized people, but then it's like, and he's a good guy. And it's like, <laughs> didn't you just trap a dude in a bear trap and shoot him? Like, what's wrong with you? And it's, but at the same time, you just like, so that it doesn't line up. And that's, we're really careful about that in games now, or at least we try to be, where what the player's doing and what the characters, like sort of character study, like what their role is, should probably line up. Uh, Last of Us 2 just came out again. I mentioned that um, I'm sort of on the not excited camp on that one because I, I think video game violence is kind of trite at this point. Like I feel like we've tread that ground so many times that it's like the grass is dead. But anyway, um, but... That said, the character's actions and the character's motivations line up perfectly. Like, you are out for vicious, bloody, visceral revenge, and you do vicious, bloody, visceral revenge. Like, they line up. And so we're more conscious of the concept that you can't have a character who's this plucky, happy rogue who then goes and cuts off 500 people's heads. Um, Movies have been aware of this for a long time. Think of, like, the Hans shot first kind of thing, right? Like, you know, we're pretty conscious about the idea that, like, if we want Han to be this lovable rogue, you can't just have someone come looking for money from him and have him blow his head off. Like, it's just too sharp for that character's motivations. So we have that weird quick edit. But to your point, it's one of the interesting things now that because I think that uh, that idea, that thread is actually being, they're now being exploring with it. Like if you look at something like Red Dead Redemption 2, where yeah. you can choose the built, you can choose the black hat or you can choose the white hat. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you are now giving your character, you start off almost with the blank state, but you can choose the adventure. And One thing that's done kind of masterfully in that game, that's uh, sort of neat is, um, and I was really impressed by this. I'd like to think it was intentional um, because from a game design perspective, it looks really amazing. Early on in the game, you actually have fewer penalties for poor behavior. Right. Um, yeah. So like really early in the game, you're just not encouraged, but there's not really a discouragement to you being an asshole. So I remember the first person I found in the game was like, I remember you, you robbed that bank. And I was like, you're dead. So like the second he said that, I was like, you, you are not going to survive this encounter, friend. Like, so I was like, you're not going to go run and tell on me. Your corpse is going in a ditch. And later on in the game, 
Arthur, the character in the game, right. you know, starts getting this super sympathetic edge and it's like maybe he's being manipulated to be the bad guy and maybe he's not really that bad and like the guy that's the ringleader is maybe the shithead and then Arthur gets sick and it's like, but interestingly, the consequences for your poor behavior on a mechanical side also ramp up. So you as a character tend to start feeling really bad about your negative points that you have and you try to reform as a character player while the character is also trying to reform. So your arc naturally because of the way the mechanics change in an interesting way follows the narrative arc that the character experiences so really good experiences in games you try to really tie mechanical things that happen to the player like loss of power or tools or available um, things that they can manipulate along with um, the narrative arc of the character that they're following now of course not every game even has a story, right? Like, I mean, you can play Minecraft all day and really, so games, we sometimes tend to talk about them being, and this is maybe a false dichotomy, but we often talk about it as, are they more toy-like or more film-like um, mm -hmm. to try to put them on a bit of a spectrum where you would call a film very, 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 very little player control with a very high emphasis on sort of narratology and storytelling, whereas you might call a toy really no story to speak of but a complete emphasis on manipulation and playfulness so uh, everything sits somewhere on that spectrum and it's a useful tool for sort of thinking about games but i really wouldn't use it to you know review or critique or anything it's really just like an understanding kind of tool but that all speaks to like the sophistication of games now in the current generation that you're you know a part of now i think that's really exciting you know that you're putting planning a flag uh here in erie you know i think it's great i'm sure you've um had some struggles getting getting to the point that you're at now what would be your pitch uh, for for a last statement i guess what would be your your pitch to erie as far as you know the virtual world's industry what what doesn't erie get so far maybe it's changing now uh but what's a message that we could give Erie that maybe they don't understand if they well, don't get. A, you're putting game. an awful lot of awful lot of weight on my shoulders. I know, I'm gonna give, I'll give it a shot. Let me preface this with the fact that I did not grow up in this country. So I know Canada is not far away, but in many ways it is a foreign country. This is still, uh, I mean, this is literally a foreign country. And also, you know, this is a place where like one person gets shot and it is on every news channel in the country for weeks. So it, it's like there's many, for the most part, we're the same country. If I blindfolded you and put you in Toronto or Calgary or something, other than that you would pronounce the second T in Toronto, no one would know you were American. Like everything else would just be exactly the same. It's the same, like, you, you know, and the money's colorful and easy to sort instead of the same damn color. And I still have to literally pull it out one at a time. My point with this little ramble is I love it here. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to preface that. Canadians do this. Apologize up front. Apologize at the back. I will end up apologizing after I say this. Americans are incredibly change resistant. It doesn't even matter if it's good change. It's just change. That has never been more clear than during this pandemic, right? Like, you will see people debating about putting a millimeter thick piece of fabric on their faces because the government told me to do it. The concept, so this is why I have a struggle with this question, is because the concept that anyone, Jesus Christ himself, could tell you to do something, and the fact that someone else told you to do it, or that you should do it, or that you should even consider thinking about doing it, <laughs> seems to be anathema to the identity of the country. And that makes sense when you consider that it was founded by rebels. Right. I mean, it makes sense that your part of your national identity is, you know, treason. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's there. Right. I mean, it like that's so it's difficult. Well put. Well put. Well, 
<laughs> Truly. I'm Canadian. I call it like it is, and then I apologize. Right. <laughs> um, it's really a tricky nut to crack. Erie needs to change. And I don't mean like fundamentally, like there's lots of things here that are great. I'm not trying to come in and turn your kid into a communist and put 5G chemtrails in your backyard or whatever the hell you're worried about. What I'm suggesting is we need to reduce our dependence on legacy industries. So we have a really strident base of people in the county more than the city who hold extremely traditional values, and that's fine. From an economic perspective, they really truly believe that, for example, people somewhere are still buying coal. We're just not able to sell it here because the government is inept or something. Well, the reality is the world has changed, and fucking nobody wants coal. Nobody. Anywhere. So this now is this worthless commodity that there's no point enforcing anybody or paying anybody to mine. And if we can't sell it, then then the commodity is worthless. So it's just, it's an inevitable infinite debt cycle if we continue to pay people to pull out something that has no use. No matter how much you don't want that to change, it will either with you or in spite of you. And whether that's a peaceful transition with difficulties to a new job, dying in stubbornness while your family is squalid due to your abject refusal to change, the change happens regardless. It's just whether or not you are dragged by the face or you walk willingly. Masked um, face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make me wear no mask. I, you know, Take away like, my uh, freedom. There used to be, I want to, I want to show you something. I got to, I have to link you a thing. So this is a, this is what I will. Um, great, great answer. By the way. I have a, I have more, maybe a hair more to that, but uh, I'm going to leave you with this. You don't have to watch it right now, but. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So in Canada, we have these stupid things um, called uh, Canadian heritage moments. So to give you a little bit of history to this. Canadians are really worried about, imagine you were trying to raise your kids as good Christians, but your downstairs neighbors were Satanists with megaphones. <laughs> so that's sort of what it's like being Canada sitting above America. <laughs> so we're trying our best to teach people about Canada. The U.S. is a media behemoth, right? Like one thing the U.S. does better than anybody is create killer top of shelf media content. Best YouTuber streamers are from here. Well, with a few exceptions, the biggest like historical, like Hollywood golden era, the biggest films come out of here The you know, the, like this is a media empire. Right. And so when you live next door to a media empire, you have to be very careful not to completely lose your national identity through the discourse of the media. Because have you ever even seen a Canadian like $5 bill on a TV show? Unless it's specifically <laughs> a Canadian TV show and someone tells you ahead of time, this is a Canadian TV show, like you just miss it. Right. And so there's not that much difference between a Canadian and American person or like it's very subtle so it's super easy to just yeah. red white and blue wash them out of existence in in the media and that's that's it's not good or bad it's just it's such a powerful media entity that Canada has to be super careful so anyway Canada has all of these grants and regulations from the CRTC which is sort of like the FCC that certain amounts of content per hour on broadcast must contain Canadian content you know, if you're listening to radio in Canada, you'll get top 40, top 40, top 40, weird Canadian artist you've never heard of, top 40, top 40, top 40. <laughs> but this, 
will happen in order to ensure that we don't just completely get kind of overwhelmed. So anyway, punctuating Saturday morning cartoons were these little things we called heritage minutes or heritage moments. And I just pasted one to you. And basically they'd be these little like 30 second to a minute long vignettes about, you know, significant historical moments in Canadian history. The idea was you're trying to teach kids about their country a little bit, you know, while they're consuming American cartoons, by and large. You know, they covered all kinds of things. First World War, women's suffrage, French-Canadian struggles in Canada, um, all kinds of things. This one in particular was about the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the Northwest during the gold rush. And it forms the basis for what most Canadians will mockingly, kids will mockingly joke about American personalities. So the guy is a gambler and he has gambling equipment. <laughs> and gambling at the time was illegal in Canada, completely. Uh, and so they confiscate it. And the guy just Yosemite Sams and pulls out a bunch of pistols. And like, you can't do this to me. I'm an American. And starts dancing around with the guns. And it like that caricature will come up in joking conversations throughout Canada. It is a, it is a cherished pastime to quote random. I, I can't wait to watch it. It's, I know. <laughs> anyway. Resistance to change is literally, and I say this from the inside looking in at this point, yeah. but resistance to change is for better and worse, something we think of when we think of sort of like the kind of American consciousness. The resistance to change thing can be good. It's like, hey, in the face of, you know, to, to, to pull the treason joke, in the face of unreasonable taxation and being stepped on by tyrant George III and whatnot, you're like, hey, I'm going to yeah. put this pitchfork in the ground and you can get the fuck out of my country. And that, that was good. But then it's but in like, this, in a but city now it's that like, really needs hey, to maybe people itself, yeah. might be black sometimes. And we're like, nope, no, that, nope, that can't happen. So resistance to change can go both ways. It can go mm -hmm. like, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to protect this thing that I love. But it can also go get your weird food out of my grocery store and go back to your home country, which, which is the bad side of that change resistance. Unfortunately here, like I say, it's so direly needed that when you look at other cities about this size or of comparable size that have had major shifts in industry, um, Liverpool in the UK was a major east-west shipping transit landing point. So if you were moving freight from the uh, North American continent to Europe, um, Liverpool ended up being a stopping point all the time. But freight has like plummeted, um, especially by water. Like it has absolutely plummeted. It still happens, but by uh, well, a significant amount still happens. But compared to the Industrial Revolution, when it was like, well, there's only one place in the world that makes textiles, so I guess we got to ship it all. Uh, things have changed. So consequently, um, Liverpool, I mean, their shipping industry shit the bed, right? And, and now you have all these enormous derelict warehouses and ports. But now Liverpool is like this tech hub because they're like, well, hey, you know what's here? Wi-Fi, high-speed internet, and real estate that costs nothing because we literally have to give it away um, because it's derelict and empty. Um, and now that entire dock is just this shipping hub. Like there's game companies, there's, uh, that was a shipping hub, excuse me, games companies, microbreweries, cafes, all the things serving all the high-tech workers. Um, this happens in Market Square in Pittsburgh, which used to be, you know, at the um, sort of, and I could talk for six hours about the gentrification side of this, of course, which is a separate topic that certainly is um, important to think about. But that confluence used to be nothing but like stinking textile factories that spewed poison into the air and then derelict property. And now it's Google. Yeah, I don't necessarily think you should just slap a Google on it as a, as a fix for a problem because that comes with its own host of problems. But one way or another, work's changing. Even the fact that we're having this conversation on Zoom, right? Like, I mean, there are businesses now that have to face the reality that it might be a while before they can cram people into a call center next to each other anymore in close right. proximity. 
like I said, change happens whether you want it or not. Right now, mm. it's coming at the bayonet point of a pandemic, but maybe this, this is what it took. You know, maybe this is what it's going to take to to make the change, right? I, I mean, I think someone shared something with me on Twitter the other day that people were like burning their masks, irony of having to wear a mask. And I said, maybe if we all stay inside, this problem just solves itself. Right. <laughs> you know, like, right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, not great. But yeah, so I mean, I don't mean to go on a rant, but it like it really is about change resistance. Um, yeah. Even in searching for investment for this, right, we had to be very mindful of the fact that we were going to speak to people who were used to investing in widgets, screws and bolts right. and nuts and steel. And, and those are real things that built the country. And so this isn't meant to diminish them. That part's built now. We have to move on. Right. Um, it's an odd thing to cling to that. It's a bit like you've built the frame of the car. We need to paint it now. Well, you can't take my frame building job. That's not what th th the frame is built. You did your job. Let's, we need to move on. So the yeah. infrastructure that built the backbones of the Wi-Fi, excuse me, the fiber op downtown and whatnot was, was years ago. It was all like Nortel tech and things that, that, that is built now, but we're not laying new telephone wire now. That would be absurd because that industry by its nature moved on. Right. Uh, and I mean, we need to, too, or we're going to face yeah. joblessness, obsolescence. Well, Matt, thank you so much for telling us about how you're going to be yeah, part man. of this change. Your sure, company I appreciate is incredible. it. Um, we're going to keep an eye on you and... and I'm sorry you know, if I went hopefully... way over on time. I have a bad No, that's okay. No time limit. No time <laughs> when the, yeah, there's no time limit, but it's always, you know, when the conversation is interesting, we always keep it going, but we should sure. wrap it up now. I just, yeah. I'm really appreciative of you being here. We'll have you back again to talk about your next big success. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, thank you. I'll just hop Thanks, off. Thanks, man. Thanks, Appreciate Matt. it. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so that was very cool. So we've been doing film recommendations for a while. We actually, because Erica and Mike noticed, I assume, that Hannibal had arrived on Netflix, you guys started watching it, and I love the series very much. Hannibal, we're gonna talk about the first three episodes of season one, the entire series, which is just three seasons, 39 episodes. Um, is on Netflix. <laughs> if you're not familiar with any of the films, just to give you a, a little bit of an intro, you know, it, the series does kind of start off in familiar-ish territory as far as the way it's designed, that it's, you know, a bit of a murder of the week kind of a thing. But what sets this show off big time is that it's very character focused, very thematically focused. You know, you guys have almost finished season one. To me, seeing the whole thing, I feel like it's a love story that's about family. Like, I know that's like the weirdest thing to say about this show, but by the time you guys get to the end, I'm very curious what, what you think it's about. So we have Will, who is not a official member of the FBI but he is brought in to uh, kind of these aftermath crime scene situations and they have a device uh, which thankfully in my opinion doesn't last if I recall after season one, but they have this kind of copy machine visual effect device where he's looking at the aftermath, you know, with all the, the blood and the violence um, and he kind of wipes away the slate and you you show like his mind 
process how we got to that moment where he's trying to solve um, the situation. Will's very unsocial. He takes in stray dogs. He lives by himself. One character said that uh, he's guided by imagination and fear, which I think is very interesting. Then we have, so then we have the FBI team, which is led by, what's Lawrence Fishburne's character's name, guys? Jack? Jack. 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 So he's in charge of the FBI team. He's a very interesting character because, you know, he brings Will into these situations and keeps pulling him in, even though Will doesn't really want to be doing this job. I mean, then you have Hannibal and you have some other, are they, they psychiatrists? Brooks. Hannibal, Brooks. Yeah, there's some both. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so they're, they're psychiatrists. psychiatrists. And you have them brought into the story as well. And they're all kind of psychoanalyzing each other. So you get that perspective, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hannibal describes Will as pure, that he has pure empathy. Yeah. Um, which kind of gives you... Uh, he says it's a disorder. He says you have an empathy disorder. Yeah. And when John says that he sees a scene in his mind after wiping the slate clean and he watches a crime happen, he literally like physically reacts to that, his mind and his body. And he's, it almost like he has no control over it. And so it is kind of a disorder. He has hallucinations. He sleepwalks. His brain is like, He's truly, I guess you could say, gifted and sick at the same time. And the actor that portrays him, I mean, you feel like like he's just, I can't imagine the intensity of his role specifically. It would be like so tiring to me, like imagining mm-hmm. what this actor. Hugh Dancy. Uh, yeah, Hugh. Uh, you know, he, is ju- he just always feels wired and on edge and like he's always yeah. like shaking. Yes. Like he's just so intense. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a beautiful performance and so yeah. um, disturbing. Like, yeah. all the performances are great. So just to finish my little intro, so um, the showrunner is Brian Fuller. He described his influences for the series, um, What Would David Lynch Do With a Hannibal Lecter Character? Hannibal Lecter, we didn't even get into. Right, I was going to say. Mads Mikkelsen is like yes. one of my favorite contemporary Love him, actors. love him. He plays Hannibal, and Hannibal is very interesting. I'll let you guys get into Hannibal. But basically, the showrunner wanted to do a combination of Lynch, Kubrick, and Cronenberg, and Dario Argento as far as his influences. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. There, He has... I'm sorry, now I'm just jumping right in. No, go, go. When he, the first, I think it's, I don't know, the first or second episode, and Jack and Will go into the bathroom, that is the bathroom from The Shining. Seriously. They go in to the red bathroom from The Shining. It is directly, it is an homage. There are other times where he even does one to um, the first episode of the series Sherlock, where you have at the door, you've got like the medical, you know, examiners like, yes, I think this is what happened. And literally Will goes up and silently closes the door on the guy's face. That, that, is, that is exactly in the first episode of Sherlock too. I find these moments where I'm like, ooh, I see that somewhere else. Which actually, I think he's doing intentionally. It's, it's absolutely intentional. It's gotta be because you don't do that stuff by accident. 
So what do you guys think about just focusing on the first three episodes? You know, the story arc there, because there is a bit of a story arc. We meet all of the characters. We really, they do a great job of, I think, setting up a lot of the early interrelational mm-hmm. situations and things to come. But um, yeah. curious, just, just hop in. And um, because I think a lot of people are tur- like, Stu maybe is one of them like I wasn't sure that I would like this show watching it and it's really violent and it does glorify um a lot it's such a stylistic show yeah um that it could be going off the rails very easily but thankfully it just gets better and better and better in my opinion in time and that's why I keep telling you guys like I can't wait for you to watch season two and season three because I thought it was like peak TV that just didn't get the respect or the viewership. Well, I'll start with this. I think it was actually, and I sort of get a, because we've been texting about it and I'm a little bit further uh, uh, along the show than Erica is. But all this We're only talking about the first three episodes. I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to say this. One of the smart things I think that the show has done is because uh, the uh, source material of Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal and uh, uh, the Red Dragon are so well known, or Man or Manhunter, right? Yeah, uh, the one back in the eighties, um, the Michael Mann one. Uh, because that it, source material is so well known and has been seen by such an audience, it's I think it's actually a really smart move by Fuller and his uh, writer staff to focus on uh, the team, the FBI team first, and it, Hannibal. You know who Hannibal Lecter is. And they sort of just have him orbiting around there. And like, and as the series sort of goes on, again, we won't go past the first three episodes, he starts getting more involved and everything. But then as he sort of starts getting, playing into their dynamic more, it, it's great. Because I think one of the great things, and I, I'm going to say, I, I hate saying this too much, but one of the brilliant things about the show is that the monster is always so much more, it's always so much worse because they don't always show the, the violence and the gratuity. Like they'll show you the aftermath of it, but it's left to the viewer to sort of put the pieces together in a lot of the uh, situations. Actually, Will is the one that commits the violence. You, and Will's the one who commits in the Will's violence. visions, yeah. he puts himself in the role of the killer, and you see Will acting out the violent scenarios, but you don't see the actual murders happening yourself. Um, Hannibal Lecter is an incredible character because he is so much smarter than anyone else ever, and he is playing everyone constantly, and it's incredible. I think that the set design is so good for his office, you know, his, his manse, if you will. Like he has this big house and they shoot it from the outside. It looks like a, it looks like a house of horrors. I mean, well, it truly is. That's where when you get, you can, well, you can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So when you get inside, it's this, wide open space but then he has this library up on a second level and he's walking around on this second level talking to people sometimes he's truly above everybody all the time and you think to yourself oh he's just a you know he's just a serial killer like he's just a serial killer that eats human organs but no he gets himself involved and he takes part 
in in the story that this he's there to consult. They call him to be a psychiatry consultant to help solve the the crimes and to kind of keep an eye on Will and to keep an eye on Will because he's like Will's psychiatrist because Will is a disaster. Um, well, he's a wonderful character, but like John said, he's like constantly shaking because he is so on edge. Perception's um, a tool that's pointed at both ends. That's, uh, you know, something they use to describe Will's. Yes. <laughs> what I love yeah. is that the next step further is that he's actually playing a part in all of these, not all of these crimes. In the first three episodes, you, you realize like he's involved and he's willing to go out on a limb and invite Abigail. So the story thread is this. The show starts off and eight girls have been murdered and they all have the same characteristics. They're the same age, the same hair. They're like versions of each other. Will, basically uh, the information about these crimes gets out and then there's a copycat kill in the same community. Hannibal inserts himself into this by alerting once they get close to who the killer is, he tips them off. Um, and, and things like that. And that's in the, what, the second episode. I mean, it's not like you're giving yeah. anything really away. He, he calls the guy and tips him off. And so you're like, he's also kind of this agent. I don't know how to take it. Is he acting in solidarity with other murderers, other psychopaths? No. Is he doing th That's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm like, I, why I is he doing this? Is he an agent of chaos? Like he wants everything to go out of control so that he can then be the person to bring it back under control? He has a drive and he has a design like Will has sort of talked about. But in order to continue to not get caught, which is ultimately the, you know. The right. Point, he is, he throws sort of smoke screens in there and he will to send the FBI off on all these different like tangents and stuff like that to sort of take their scent off of him. True. However, he goes to Abigail and says, Abigail is the young woman who is very much like all the other girls that have been murdered. Her father's the, the killer. We can her say father it. is the killer. Okay, her father is the killer. They figure this out kind of quickly because Will just happens to be like this insane empath and he's like they're all the same he's loving them he's a protector like he just comes up with this criminal profile and is able to say it's probably her dad so Hannibal tips them off Abigail is the daughter the the father ends up um you know killing some more and Abigail uh is very distraught disturbed and distraught by it a sibling of one of the other victims attacks her and she kills him. And instead of like, he's, you know, this is a crime scene and oh my God, Hannibal goes to her and he's like, well, we could do this <laughs> or I could help you hide the body. <laughs> oh, okay. So now he's like in her old house where her parents have died and she's murdered somebody and is terrified by it in that moment. And Hannibal's like, we could hide the body. So it's yeah. just so creepy. Everything is intentional and callbacks happen for like pretty much to the, to the first episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting way to your, your point, Erica, about how they introduce Hannibal or Mike, perhaps you said, you know, everyone, everyone kind of knows that character if it's the only thing you know about this story. And um, Brian Fuller, I found a quote from him, the showrunner. He said, you know, show the audience the bomb under the table 
right at the beginning and then let them sweat when it's going to go boom, which I think is uh-huh. great. So you just put right. Hannibal in there. Yeah. And Hannibal I, I, is such an, in, this Hannibal, I think is such an interesting character. He's always been an interesting character, but by doing a series, you can give him like even, even more depth. I think that, you know, he's a loner. He's doing this kind of by himself. I think you really see him enjoying, you know, yeah. being pulled in. I mean, just imagine the just the danger of inviting someone like that into the inner workings and peeking behind <laughs> the, the FBI. FBI curtain. I mean, it's like, for him, it's like Christmas, right? Oh my God, I know. <laughs> so he can like just manipulate, and manipulation, you know, Mike will know this so much. There's so much manipulation going on from characters left and right it's like uh, manipulation is a very big theme that's Mm -hmm. that's running through this show and you think that somebody uh maybe is innocent and we're all wired with uh certain certain things in the human condition right well i mean it's funny because later in a later episode will is talking and he i don't know if it's to his empty classroom or to actual students but he basically says he's like we've all thought about killing someone, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so it, it, it makes sense that each of these characters have their own problems and things they're trying to avoid or accomplish. And uh, I mean, in a show with so much killing, like, sure. I I can't wait to see what happens. I'm on episode nine, right? Yeah, good. John, to your point, and this this really gets into some of like to the point of manipulation. This will ultimately, as the series goes on, and I think it starts to happen around episode three, you start to see a conflict develop between Jack and Hannibal because there's two king pieces as far as the psychology goes, and you can start to see that they're they because of the nature of their professions, they have to work together but they're starting to come in very aware of their conflict. And the other one I don't think is aware of their conflict, but they're starting to drive to a collision point towards each other. Uh And you can tell that Hannibal is bringing Jack into his home and serving him meals and really getting a close relationship with him going so that clearly he can use that later on. One of the, I wanted to bring this point up. This is not from the first three episodes, but I think it doesn't really give too much away. It might be the fourth or fifth episode where um, there's, a, there's a killer and he has a brain disorder. He has cancer or he has something going on with his brain where he has hallucinations and stuff. The way that he kills, he basically creates wings by peeling human skin up on the oh, back. Oh yeah, this is episode like five. Okay, well, I'm a little early, but I, but what I wanted, the reason why I brought that up is because um, Will points out that it's, it's like an old, like an ancient practice in some ways to like, get spirits away. And you know what I thought of, John? Just guess. It's from a movie. I don't know. It's the same thing they do to the guy in Midsommar when they put him in the chicken coop. And they basically, oh, you're right. no, they yeah. open up his body yeah, at the yeah. top. And it's like, that that almost exactly was like what they did. And I know that Midsommar came afterwards, but it's still the idea of like an ancient tradition yeah. to, to do that, to cleanse the spirits or something. Good recall so, in your twisted mind. Eric. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, okay. 
I am not a, I'm not really a huge horror fan. I've gotten better over the years as I've matured and I've told myself, this isn't real. It's not real. But this show is truly a horror. You know, every episode I am like, the things that you see and probably the most disturbing part of all of this is that he is a cannibal. You see him preparing human organs to eat and then he serves them to people. That is very hard for me. Uh, We all know that Hannibal is the cannibal and that is, you know, I'm sure, I mean, the, the original author, Thomas Harris, I don't know if he sat down one day and was like, it's going to be pretty cute. Someday they're going to make, you know, a cartoon <laughs> character called Hannibal the Cannibal. So I'm just going to do that now. It's, he's <laughs> Hannibal the Cannibal. I mean, that is kind of eye roll inducing, but um, I have a hard time with the cam- cannibalism. I, I can't imagine anyone doesn't. But somebody it's pointed so against, it, it's so taboo. I mean, like. In society. Yeah. <laughs> John, I don't. I mean, I was really worried. Like to what you're talking about, Erica. Like I was really worried about the show. Like what drew me to this show was Mads Mikkelsen. I was really worried that I was going to get tired of all of the. It's not like you see a lot of violence in action, but you're it's you're seeing the aftermath, like the presentation. Thankfully, I will say again for people that are like, really Hannibal. Like I'm, I have no interest in that. I would be. It gets very, very character focused, and you can see um, the threads of it among all the all the blood and gore of these first three episodes. Like the Will and Hannibal relationship is why you watch this show. Like when they first meet, uh, Hannibal is like trying to, you know, it's kind of like a first first date. And he makes them breakfast and they sit down in a hotel room and he's like, you know, Hannibal, you can tell is kind of bothered because of Will's disinterest. And he's like, uh, I don't find you that interesting. And he's like, Will, you will. (laughs) (laughs) And also in the first episode, um, uh, Will asks him, like, how do you see me? And I wrote this one down, too, that he says, a mongoose I want under the house when the snakes slither by. Yeah, Um, I love that line. And the episode one ends, uh, you know, we've spoiled that uh, Abigail's dad was the killer, but this is episode one. Episode one ends with you have the daughter in the hospital surviving a, a terrible incident, and you have like her two fathers on both sides um, of the of the bed. And I thought yeah. um, the way episode one ends and the way that this series continues. Um, that says great. I have a I, I have a question. You know what's funny because Mike uh-huh. actually said. Their whole My Two Dads act. He yeah. called that out when we were watching it. <laughs> I, I have a question. Right there. And add this, because um, I don't have an answer for this. And so opening it up to the panel. There is, early on, with the Minnesota killings, uh, there's a lot of hunting apparatuses that are used in the presentation of the bodies. To you guys, what is the metaphor, and what is the symbolism of the, 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 the black stag? I mean, is it the deer? Because like deer, yeah. they use for innocence. Um, like deer and the ant- deer antlers and stuff is has been a like a token of our totem of innocence that's used in a bunch of horror. Oh. So you mean as far as Will sees a hallucination of a black, like a pitch black? Um, yeah, a black stag. Yeah, yeah. It shows with, up like, the hair raised up. 
Yes. Um, I mean, leave it up, up to you guys. I see it as sort of a warning, visual warning of the path that he's, he's going down, like losing his, I don't know if it's innocence, but it feels definitely like a warning sign that he's seeing all the time. <laughs> it seems like he's always, he's so haunted by his talent and what he sees. And so that stag carries into his dreams because it just continues to haunt him. It's dark. It's like it's like all of the killing and all of these horrible people and situations, it, it kind of embodies that. Mm -hmm. And that's always with him. In one of the episodes, I think it's episode three, the stag falls. Right, it shudders and falls. Okay. And it shudders and okay. falls down. Uh -huh. So something about something about what happens at that moment, I can't remember exactly what it is. It stops the stag for then, but it comes back. Like he can't get away from it. It's always there, and literally, it will follow him in his and in his dreams. Gonna, and I, I think that's it's what it come is. Come back in different in a different form too, which is fucking. Don't, don't say anything yet. Don't, I, I know. I'm just like, oh god. I mean, it's such a compelling. I, I see it as, a, this as was an innocent. I see like it as an innocence thing. Is I'm curious. Once you guys watch more, see what you think about the symbolism of it and it's uh see um, will to me seems so innocent yeah well pure he just empathy, seems like right? an, yeah mean, like he's so raw all the time he's a human like no other really what do you yeah. erica and mike what do you think about the elena bloom character what are your feelings of her so far I was just talking to mike about her elena is will's first psychiatrist I think they she's, work together, work, but work she does make mention that she's never been in a room alone with him before. So I I see her as a, like she's protective of him for sure. Yes, but she is absolutely. also kind of a bit of a, an admirer. I'm not a I'm not <laughs> a big fan of that. Fan. I see that I see that coming, mm -hmm. and I don't like that. It, it's not there's something about that that's absolutely that doesn't fit. She may be protective but she's not, she's not what Will needs. And I don't know exactly what Will needs in a partner or in someone. It almost seems like he's, he's I don't I, wanna say crazy is not the word, but like he's not even available. He has nothing left to be in a relationship with a woman or a man in a romantic she, way. Okay, so there's the character Beverly who works as the FBI team. And I, I kind of agree oh, yeah, with yeah, I like her. Yeah, I like her a lot. Yeah, her chemistry with Will is much more, much uh, better. It's much. It's much more like there's an element that she, where she is strong in what he would need. I can understand. I, I don't quite understand. He challenges him. Like Beverly challenges him. Yes. And uh, in, in is playful with him. Bloom, I feel like, is almost like another threatening figure that's disguised as a friend. Is kind right. Of there's something like. tampering about her. In a way, yeah. That's, that now I, again. controlling. You're right. I think there's something about her that wants to control him, whereas you're absolutely right about um, the medical Beverly. girl in the medical office, yeah. Beverly. 
and how, yeah, she has a lightheartedness that that's what he needs. He needs someone to like help him take a breath and like think twice and maybe laugh about something once in a while. Yeah, like that FBI team, it's, I could never understand this job, but like they're cracking jokes and like just oh, buddy is just like any job, you know, and they're just yep. looking at the most horrific scenes. But like you have to, it's gallows humor. I mean, we have some, uh, we know, I won't mention by name, but we have a friend who uh, owns a, a, a funeral home. And so you have to have a sense of humor because if the reality of it, if what you're dealing with on the day of day to day, if you aren't able to at some point try to like, it can wear down on you. And I've talked to him before about it. And uh, it's just like, you better get a sense of humor. Yeah. What's yeah. interesting is just last night we were having dinner with friends in Cleveland and they both work in the news. The gal, Kristen, not so much anymore, but she was a crime reporter mm. at ABC station in Cleveland. But she recently, so the residents of Cuyahoga County are eligible to sign up for a medical examiner's course as a, um, simply as an observer, you go in and learn what the medical examiner's office does. And so you go seven weeks and you're at the office learning about what they do watching an opt autopsy, watching them do exactly what these people are doing. Take out the organs, look at them, cut them up. What was this person's problem? You know, they, they do all these autopsies. I'm like, why would you want to do that? Oh She's just curious. And her husband is in line for the next one. She's like, but I saw it and I don't need to see it again. She's like, I was worried about the smell Hmm. But it's the sounds that really get you. Oh, God. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but I get it. Like, I don't know how they do it. But she was saying, like, you know, when they're the medical examiner's office, that's their job. They're not reviling in horror or tearing up. They just, yeah. it's a different mindset about what those bodies are. Yeah. My critique, I will. Okay, so I got a couple notes on episode two, and then we can go into episode three. Um, critiques of the show early on. When I saw the mushroom farm in episode two, I was like, okay, they've upped the ante like in the <laughs> yeah. volume like right away. That right. seriously was when I was like, this show isn't going to be for me. Like if if they're already going from we've murdered eight girls to now we've got a full full-on mushroom farm like I'm just like okay this is <laughs> somehow it like you know because like, these crime scenes are like a work of art and it like elevates death to like art <laughs> which yes. got me thinking because um I'm drawn naturally to like Francis Bacon paintings like for some reason when Dorota and I go to a museum I know Mike's cracking up when Dorota and I go to a museum I will be in a gallery, like walking around, and sure enough, it's like the colors he uses or like how he uses black or something like that. Like I am drawn like a moth to flame to uh -huh. Francis Bacon in his fucked up mind. I was gonna say that's that's pretty gruesome. It's pretty <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, pretty dark. And I don't and I don't like this stuff, but for some reason, like when I can sense like the I don't know, like for some reason with this this show and the way it's designed and the way it's presented and the character and I don't wanna say the inspirations of Francis Bacon, but I mean, it's like, I don't know, on some visceral deep level, 
I connected to this stuff. And I just yeah. wanted to grab a quote from, there's one quote that Hannibal says to Will in episode two. He says, killing must feel good to God. He does it often enough. And then he makes a comment about it makes one feel powerful. I think that's right. also like um, important as far mm -hmm. as themes of the show. Mike, you're right. going to say something about my easy to have probably written off the show, network television, you know, primetime spot and everything like that. This is not Law and Order. This is not CSI. This is not NCIS. Things that happen in episode one do have a, a ramifications all the way to episode nine. We won't talk about it, but it's just like this, it is a, a very quickly and very adept, like adroitly and adeptly weaves the fabric of the story it is telling and does it quickly. It is very well done. Mm -hmm. It does lay the groundwork and already has you thinking to exactly what you said, John, that it's a lot of manipulation. It's a character study. You absolutely get that from, from the get-go, just with the conversations. You can see it. I can see it. I saw it immediately with Hannibal and Jack. Mm -hmm. That's the first relationship yeah. where I'm like, this uh -oh. is where some serious, yeah, some serious uh -oh. <laughs> shit is happening. Um, but, you know, yes, and with Elena and Will, absolutely. It almost seems like they're all hovering around Will, and he's the only one that's like, that's not trying to manipulate someone. That's, that he is the innocence yeah. in the whole thing. Yeah, because really I'm, Abigail too, right? Like Abigail has big red, red flag. Like she appears young, innocent. <laughs> She's got yeah, red no. flags going off like crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like the yeah, whole cause... eating the deer is honoring it. Otherwise, it's just murder. You know, like you get these little things thrown in there all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's reading an anthropology book when she's sitting in the hospital, which is kind of like, hmm, uh -huh. okay. That's the book mm -hmm. she chose to. Anthropology? Casually... Like about yeah. humans? Just human. Like culture and the relationship yeah. between people and societies it's like interesting hmm. i didn't i didn't pick up on that yeah yeah wow. in the shot. yeah okay well now you have me thinking that abigail is an important piece of this family story that you mentioned right in the beginning that's fine that's fine i well because it's it's kind of like you can see it i mean hannibal is sitting there next to her bed like nodding off like he's sleeping next to her while she's in the hospital bed and that just shows like caring or camaraderie or something and then of course with his i'm gonna help you hide this body they're they're bonded forever now whether they whether they were before uh they're definitely bonded forever and they don't you know episodes in i mean i'm on episode nine i think still haven't wrapped that up still don't know what the, what's happening with that so don't yeah, I imagine it does because they he says it and then it disappears for many episodes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there's a a, a quote uh, as far as like the Anna, Anna Abigail and er, this collection of characters that we've thrown together. Like Hannibal says, I got one more quote I wrote down. One cannot be delusional if the belief in question is accepted as ordinary by others in that person's culture or subculture or family. As uh -huh. they're all kind of sitting together trying to piece together um, Abigail's story. I think you're getting, getting some hints there. Yeah. <laughs> Mads is truly, Mads Mickelson is truly a creepy 
character. Now he, as an actor, it's so sophisticated is, and he stylish. Is. <laughs> He's so sophisticated and stylish, but I think that casting him was so brilliant because he has a look about him that is almost alien-like. You know, he's, and you watch him in other movies and he smiles and he laughs. He's not this kind of character, but he has this very distinctive look. And on top of that is three-piece suits, his perfect hair, um, his very refined taste in music and art. And he, he himself is an artist and he cooks and he's, yeah. likes to have a good meal and drink good wine um he's he does such an incredible a chameleon job. right like he yes we've seen him play so many different roles and that's why i think he's just amazing and i think it's interesting yeah. i looking through some people they tried to get in the cast bowie like david bowie they tried to get in the show which wow. would have been amazing you know they yeah. cast these people that um you know a lot of them are playing against type for sure <laughs> What was that, Mike? Eddie Izzard will show up later. Yeah. And so, yep. Yeah. They, they do have some heavies that come in. And, and Lawrence Fish, this is a different type of character for Lawrence Fishburne, too. There is, the, he really dives in, and there is some layer and some texture to how he is playing this, uh, the sort of like the traditional leader of the team, uh, sort of FBI. Right. Yeah, and you'll get into more of his story, like his family relationship and his relationship with his wife, like all of that comes in later. Like, I just can't, I feel like, and I've told Mike this too, like season two, episode one, which you guys are both so close to, to me is the best season premiere show maybe ever that I can think of. Okay. So I I, I kind of like, man, I want to do this again for season two, oh. like the first three episodes. Well, let's, well, I, why not? Why not? Why not? How about we could, we could absolutely do that, or we could just do chunks of three episodes <laughs> and talk about this on a semi-regular basis. Because why not? Maybe so. Um, I, I know that feeling of wanting to go back to not having seen something you know and then see it again for the first time yeah because now i'll watch something that i really enjoy just because i'm a creature of habit and if i like something i will go back to it again um and then i'll remember like man the first time i watched this i could barely breathe when i was watching it because <laughs> it was so intense or i was sobbing uncontrollably and now i can watch it like just Yep. I like it, but it's not really having the same effect on me. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what, what are your guys' last, last thoughts on Hannibal first three episodes? Give it a shot. If you haven't watched it, that like, if there is just, there, I know there's a lot of content out there competing for our attention and our eyeballs, but this is this was a, really a show, and they might be doing a season four because there's a there's they think that this is one of the reasons it's on Netflix right now that they're setting it up to see engage the interest so they can wrap up the story. So clearly there is uh, something of a dedicated following. He and, planned for eight seasons just just to throw that out there. He what? Continue. He planned for eight <laughs> seasons. All right. I, Back wow. to you. Wow. I, 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 but I could, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's worth watching. And, and it's worth sticking with it uh, because this isn't just a show about 
I think it's a show ultimately like that is really exploring on some level, trying to tell you a very entertaining thriller suspense story, but also asking some very interesting questions about what it is to be human. I think that the argument that possibly Hannibal is starting to try to make is that some of this is just cultural, that he is, he is living in a cultural that, a culture that most people don't. John, you are making this argument as well. So I'm curious to see what happens with more of that, because if it's just a straight serial killer, it's not, it's like we've heard that story before. So what is your rationale? Uh, I'm very curious about Hannibal's, you know, the backstory of Hannibal. I don't need to know the full thing, but I am curious about like, where has he come from? Like, what is his deal. Um, I'd like to know more about him. So I'll continue watching for that in itself. I think if you're someone like me, who's very squeamish about blood and guts and gore, you may have to look away from the television once in a while. I said to Mike the other day, tell me what's happening on screen because I don't want to see it. You, you may feel that way sometimes. It's the first time I've ever seen anyone take a set of lungs and flop them down on a cutting board and start pulpating them and cutting them. And so that, that might be an issue, but totally worth it. If you've ever watched like Dexter or any other serial killer show, it's that same kind of like great hook. Yes, it's bloody, but um, it is supremely dark. It is not a comedy in any way. Like Dexter could be lighthearted sometimes. The only lightheartedness so far is Beverly. The rest is very, very dark. So, so you have to be in the right mood for it. Oh, and Scott Thompson. Just give a shout out to Kids in the Hall. Oh yeah, Scott Thompson <laughs> from the Kids in the Hall. He's in it, and yes, he's a bit of a. Oh, there was one scene. It's so cute because they say um, when they're talking about the mushroom farm, they figure out that uh, the killer has taken diabetics and put them into a coma, and then did what he did to them. And they're like, maybe he's an alcoholic because alcoholics crave sugar. Um, oh, and they say to Scott Thompson's character, like, if you're in recovery, maybe somebody in recovery. And they're like, sorry to, you know, I don't know. He just kind of quickly throws in this line of like, I'm not in yeah. recovery. <laughs> yeah, the banter's good and the, the, the script and the dialogue, you know, yeah. like you get this level of talent because of the gore factor but mm -hmm. it's because of the story and the writing yeah and it's the the banter is good between the yeah. fbi team it's really really mm -hmm. entertaining it gives yeah. you a little break yeah, right sure. because will does not even smile really no, no. will does not smile no <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's dark it's extremely well and it just gets even more confident in its filmmaking for sure in the mm -hmm. upcoming seasons and episodes but yeah it's a yeah. beautiful celebration of some really dark dark sides of humanity mm -hmm. okay i mean i'm i'm in i'm committed all right I'm kind of i see that the sun has come out so i'm probably going to take a walk and then come awesome. home and watch the rest of season one at well, the mike's, minimum mike's got a pitch for us for uh oh. our next episode mike what's our film we're gonna watch we are gonna watch the 2019 film the art of self-defense i will not to give uh too much uh directed by riley stearns this is a film starring jesse eisenberg uh in it he plays an accountant and he is struggling with his work environment and the world at large 
and uh, he is trying to find the inner masculine voice inside of him when he comes across the uh, paths of a sensei, character named sensei, <laughs> and he gets uh, sort of convolutedly intertwined <laughs> into a path uh, where he has to awaken his courage and his, uh, not just his courage, but his inner strength. It is a black comedy. Yes, it's very right. quirky. That's been our episode. Check out Hannibal on Netflix and let us know what you think in the comments section on Facebook. We do not have a guest for next week, so stay tuned. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain.